It was before dawn. The full moon had set about 3.45, and so that early Tuesday morning was Bible black. Perhaps that's why the cannoneers in Union-held Fort Gray missed. Situated on the south side of North Carolina's Roanoke River, Union soldiers knew the monster was coming. And indeed, they saw something big, something ominous, something lying low in the river. And so they fired a 100-pound solid shot projectile, but missed. Another Union installation, Battery Worth, had a 200-pounder, but in the inky blackness, the Confederate monster slid by unnoticed. After Battery Worth, the Roanoke River stopped winding. It straightened and widened. On the right, Plymouth, North Carolina, a town held by the Federals for the last two years. And just downriver, the running lights of two Union war vessels— Lashed together, they steamed upriver to confront the Confederate creation. Inside the monster, a barked order and gun shutters opened. Heavy naval ordnance rolled out. With another order, full speed, 376 tons of Confederate naval might lurched forward and bore down on the gap between the two Union ships. It was the 19th of April, 1864, and one vessel was about to turn federal strategic plans in North Carolina, Virginia, and the entire eastern theater of the American Civil War upside down. This is the story of the CSS Ram Albemarle, an ironclad constructed not in a shipyard, but incredibly in a Halifax County, North Carolina cornfield. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there, to show that history is indeed a story. Every story has a beginning, and ours began in 1861. It took life thanks to the vision of one Confederate official, a man who acknowledged the future, Secretary of the Navy Stephen Russell Mallory. He was well suited for his cabinet post. Raised in Key West, he, back in 1853, then a U.S. Senator from Florida, chaired the Committee on Naval Affairs. Now in President Jefferson Davis's Confederate cabinet, he was a realist. He knew to offset huge Union advantages, the infant Confederate Navy had to use new naval design and technology, and so he pushed for the construction of ironclads. To do that, he gathered a talented cast. William P. Williamson was named chief naval engineer. John L. Porter, his chief naval constructor, and in charge of naval ordnance and hydrography, John M. Brooke. They were to build vessels that would destroy the wooden ships of the Union Navy, break up the Federal blockade, and frustrate Union designs on the Confederate coast, which, by the way, came early on. 
In February 1862, Union Brigadier General Ambrose E. Burnside led a wildly successful amphibious raid into the northeastern sounds of North Carolina. The capture of Roanoke Island and control of the Albemarle Sound allowed Burnside to throw eastern North Carolina into panic. Elizabeth City and Plymouth fell. An early site for ship construction in North Carolina, the Martin Shipyard at Elizabeth City, was destroyed. New Bern was captured in March of 1862. By the end of April, Moorhead, Beaufort, and Fort Macon were all under federal control. All this opened a back door to Richmond itself, and it got worse. When Confederate forces withdrew west from Yorktown in the face of McClellan's spring 1862 Peninsula Campaign, Norfolk and the massive Gosport Naval Yard were both evacuated. What could be saved from the Confederacy's most important shipbuilding facility was sent west to Richmond and to, believe it or not, Charlotte, North Carolina. The Union presence also meant that the first successful ironclad, the CSS Virginia, had to be destroyed. Mallory needed more rams, and so one he turned to was Gilbert Elliott. A native of the Albemarle Sound, Elliott had earlier worked on an ironclad design, but the federal capture of the Martin shipyard put him out of work. His efforts frustrated, he joined the 17th North Carolina as its regimental adjutant. That's where Mallory found him. The Confederate government gave him a two-year furlough from active service and ordered him back to his native North Carolina. Heavy responsibility for one who was not yet 19 years of age. Elliott teamed with Commander James W. Cook, who was to become the superintendent of a new shipbuilding site in North Carolina. He, a native of Beaufort, North Carolina, Cook joined the U.S. Navy at 16 years of age. He was now 50. He and Elliott first had to find a suitable place for construction, a site safe from federal attack. They decided on Tarboro on the Tar River. There, timber for the vessel was readily available, but iron plating was not. Since the North Carolina legislature did not support the Confederacy's iron-building venture, it would have to come from the Tredegar Iron Works in Richmond, and delivery would be a real challenge. Military conditions soon forced a move from Tarboro, and in March of 1863, they relocated to an old cornfield on the south bank of the Roanoke River, some 95 miles upstream from the Albemarle Sound. There, at a place known as Edwards Ferry, the slope to the river was appropriate for the task. The land itself belonged to William Ruffin Smith, Jr., who owned about 15,000 acres. There, assembled on the farm, was a portable steam sawmill and plenty of oak and yellow pine. Smith also had a forge on his property and available slave labor. For the site itself, stocks were built. Chief Naval Constructor John L. Porter envisioned a hull whose length would stretch 152 feet between perpendiculars. After completion, a draft of 8 feet. 
Tonnage was estimated at 376 tons or 752,000 pounds. An above-water casemate would be covered with five-inch horizontally placed yellow pine planks, then over that four-inch vertically placed oak planks. There would be six gun ports, one fore, one aft, and two on each side. Two propellers would be used, each to be cast at the Charlotte Navy Yard. To hasten construction, two more portable steam sawmills were added. Throughout April, May, and June 1863, the building of the hull and the framing of the casemate were completed. One can only imagine the challenges of building a ship in the middle of nowhere. The drilling machine was so old that drilling through freshly cut green wood was tedious. When iron plating arrived, it took 20 minutes to drill an inch and a quarter hole through a two-inch iron plate. For caulking, cotton was used. Twisted into long strands and dipped into hot tar, it was tamped into hull seams to make the warship leak-proof. But no tightly wound cotton could control another form of leak. Union Secretary of War Edwin Stanton and Navy Secretary Gideon Wells were well aware that a Confederate ironclad was being constructed at Edwards Ferry and so ordered raids. In July of 1864, Federal strikes from Newburn hit Greenville, Tarboro, and Rocky Mount. In Tarboro, another ram project taken on by Gilbert Elliott was destroyed on its stocks. To protect Edwards Ferry, Confederate Fort Branch was built on the Roanoke River to keep Union forces from moving upriver to get at the vessel while under construction. By September of 1863, two infantry companies, the 56th and 17th North Carolina, had arrived to bolster defense. In spite of Union efforts to delay or destroy, on October the 6th, 1863, horses, mules, and yokes of oxen dragged the vessel down ways that had been greased with barrels of lard. At 3 a.m., under a waning crescent moon, the iron-clad ram was launched. As one observer put it, no vessel was ever constructed under more adverse circumstances. Truth be known, there were many problems before and after launch. Bickering between Confederate Flag Officer William F. Lynch down in Wilmington, Cook and Elliott at the site, North Carolina Governor Zebulon Vance in Raleigh and Navy Secretary Mallory in Richmond. In fact, the vessel was launched long before Elliott and Cook wanted it to. But Flag Officer Lynch was so concerned about federal raids, he wanted the craft in the water so that it might be moved quickly. Testy words flew so badly between Lynch and Elliot that Lynch wanted the young shipbuilder removed from the project. But while he stayed on, he was forced to launch the unfinished ram long before he ever wanted to. Eleven days later, the unfinished ram was towed 22 miles upriver to Halifax. Another problem with Lynch's meddling, the iron plates that were attached to the wooden layers of the casemate went on before machinery was completed inside the ship, so the iron plates had to be removed to finish the interior work. Then came potential assistance 
when military matters superseded political. On January the 2nd, 1864, Robert E. Lee reminded Jefferson Davis of the importance of recapturing New Bern, North Carolina. Lee believed the campaign so important that he agreed to send troops from his army in Virginia to assist the soon-to-be-completed Albemarle and another North Carolina ironclad in the making, the Noose, which was being built down at Kinston. On January the 14th, 1864, James Cook was officially named to take command of the ironclad. Meanwhile, on-the-fly construction continued. We're not sure where the engines came from, but there were two, each capable of generating 200 horsepower. Each drove a three-bladed propeller. The iron plates were seven inches wide and two inches thick. We're not sure of their length, but the plates were bolted to wooden layers 16 inches thick. The iron required some 14 train carloads reached Wilmington after successfully running the blockade on March the 7th. Once in the North Carolina port city, there was some Army-Navy haggling about which military branch had railroad priority, but that finally was hammered out. Despite all the construction problems, on April the 1st, the vessel matched many designs in its original plan. Its length was indeed 152 feet between perpendiculars. Its draft was still 8 or 9 feet. But something new. A ram had been added, and it extended some 18 feet and was made of solid oak covered with 2 inches of iron. Its end tapered to a 4-inch pointed edge. The casemate was octagonal and 60 feet long at deck level. Deck width, 32 feet. As Porter planned, the ship weighed 376 tons. Surface smoothness had been emphasized both inside and outside. From Halifax, the ship was ordered to move 54 miles downriver to the little North Carolina town of Hamilton. And on a Sunday, April 17, 1864, while iron plating was still being attached, the ship was commissioned the CSS Albemarle. About 3 p.m. that day, the ironclad reached Williamston, and the little southern town turned out in mass. There were picnics, carriages, filled rooms, and local inns. Many may have been surprised to see one of the Albemarle's crew members. His name was Benjamin H. Gray, and the 12- or 13-year-old was assigned the perilous job of carrying bags of gunpowder from the magazine to the gun deck. He was an African-American. After the stop in Williamston, the ship continued stern first to make its way downriver. However, about 10 p.m. of the 17th, a drive shaft coupling gave way. Six hours later, they got underway again. Two hours later, at about 6 a.m. of the 18th, more trouble. This time, the rudder head fractured. Four more hours were spent in repair. Finally, about 10 p.m., Monday night, the 18th of April, the Albemarle dropped anchor about three miles upstream from federally held Plymouth, North Carolina. Gilbert Elliott was on board.
and volunteered as Cook's aide to make a personal reconnaissance of reported Union obstructions in the river. He moved down river at 11 that evening. He found that spring rain runoff had raised the river some 10 feet, and therefore there was clearance over any planted obstructions. Elliot returned with that information about 1 a.m. of the 19th, and at 2.30 in the morning, Commander Cook ordered the anchor raised. It had taken 32 hours to travel 54 miles from Halifax. Now in less than three hours, the Albemarle would experience its baptism of fire. At the command of All Ahead Slow, the ram slid out into the middle of the Roanoke River. Elliot's earlier report was accurate. Obstructions posed no problem. Federal Fort Gray got off one 100-pound shell, but it was inaccurate. Battery Worth missed its chance to fire. But aware since 8.10 p.m. of the previous evening of the ram's descent, Federal ships were ready, and the Albemarle's crew spotted them just as the ram reached Plymouth. There, directly ahead, about a mile past town, the USS Southfield and Miami, the two vessels lashed together and on a course to intercept. In command of the Union vessels, Commodore Charles W. Flusser and he ordered the two Union warships to open fire. Under attack, Cook ordered all ahead full and aim for the lashed space between the two Federal ships. The distance narrowed and then impact. The Albemarle obliquely struck the Miami, which had been closer to the Confederate ram. About 10 feet of the Miami at its waterline bore the mark of collision with an ironclad warship weighing in at 376 tons. Planks on the Federal ship were almost gouged through, but it was Miami's sister ship that suffered the real brunt of Albemarle's attack. The 18-foot ram, encased in iron plating and tapered to a four-foot point knifed into the USS Southfield's starboard bow with a sickening thud. At five knots, 376 tons crashed through the Southfield's forward storeroom and plowed through to the Federal ship's fire room some 10 feet inside the hull. The Southfield immediately began to sink and filling quickly listed and by doing so trapped the Albemarle's ram inside and started to drag the attacker down with it. Though Cook had his engines at full reverse before impact, his vessel could not break free. Meanwhile, the USS Miami now fired point-blank broadsides into the ram's port casemate. In fact, on the deck of the Miami was Commodore Flusser himself, personally manning an artillery piece. His third shot from the bow-mounted Dahlgren artillery piece ricocheted off the sloped 36-degree tallow-smeared iron plating of the Albemarle, and the shell exploded directly over his own gun. Several of his crew went down, wounded. Flusser was killed. Yes, killed by his own shot. Meanwhile, the Southfield hit the bottom of the river, and shifting as it came to rest on the bottom, rolled and freed the Albemarle. The Southfield had gone down in three to five minutes. 
The Albemarle, now freed, turned on the Miami. With its captain dead, that federal ship turned and steamed away. It was 5.11 a.m. As the sun peaked over the horizon, the Albemarle dropped anchor one mile downriver from a town and region now precariously held by federal forces. There, Albemarle, if you will, caught its breath. There had been only one Confederate casualty. Victorious, Cook and his crew awaited orders from a cooperating Confederate land force under the command of 26-year-old Lincolnton, North Carolina native Major General Robert F. Hoke. He had planned a coordinated land attack to coincide with the Albemarle's activity. While anticipating word from Hoke, the ram, the next day, steamed upriver for a mile and dropped anchor at still federally hell Plymouth. Anchoring, the ship began to shell Union-held Fort Williams. It was only a matter of time. Hammered from the river and besieged by land, the Federal force at 10 a.m. surrendered approximately 2,500 men, 28 pieces of artillery, 500 horses, 5,000 stands of arms, and 700 barrels of flour to Hoke and Plymouth was returned to Confederate hands. The little town could now serve as a port for the ironclad to drive enemy gunboats out of Albemarle and Pamlico Sounds. Plymouth's fall also meant that within days, Little Washington, North Carolina, was evacuated by Union forces. In less than 12 hours, Union war strategy in the Eastern Theater had been turned on its head. Opportunities were now limitless in northeastern North Carolina, but soon thereafter, the overall Confederate strategic picture forced a change in priorities. Simultaneously, in early May of 1864, U.S. Grant launched his overland campaign, and hoax troops were needed back in Virginia. Therefore, the capture of New Bern was assigned to another Confederate general, P.G.T. Beauregard, and he wanted the Albemarle used aggressively. He wanted the ironclad ram to sink all Federal gunboats defending New Bern, to destroy all bridges across the Trent River, and cut off all Federal communications north. To do that, Southern forces had to control the Albemarle Sound. That became the ram's next objective. For a sense of geography, 45 miles downriver from Plymouth, the Roanoke River empties into the Albemarle Sound. And in early May, the Albemarle, along with Confederate troops on the gunboat Cotton Plant and provisions on another vessel, the Bombshell, made their way downriver for the Sound. When they did, they found four Union vessels waiting for them. All withdrew, but the transport, Ida May, raced to warn the rest of the Union fleet, which was some 20 miles further east. Albemarle followed, and so did her escorts. After some four or five miles of Confederate pursuit, three Union vessels, all double-wheeled gunboats, and armed with some 10 to 12 cannon each, turned and approached. The date was May 5th. Up in Virginia on that same day, two Titans, 
Lee and Grant violently collided at a place known as the Wilderness. Here, there would be armed collision in North Carolina's Albemarle Sound. At 4.40 p.m., Union Fleet Captain Melanchthon Smith hoisted flag signaling attack. The Matabeset, 974 tons and 10 guns, led the charge. They came on in a double line, a gauntlet that threatened disaster, and the Albemarle steered to avoid it. As all closed, heavy naval ordnance barked, and with Union vessels swarming, the third or fourth Union shot struck the muzzle of the Albemarle's aft gun and broke off some 20 inches of the gun's barrel. Incredibly, it was still serviceable. And less than 15 minutes after Smith hoisted his attack flags, his ships now literally surrounded the Albemarle. There was the 14-gun Wayalusing, the 12-gun Sassacus, and the 10-gun Matabeset. To put this in perspective, the Albemarle, at 376 tons, was taking on firepower from ships weighing in at 2,922 tons an eight-ton-to-one advantage. The bombshell, one of Albemarle's escorts, hauled in three places, lowered its flag, ran up a white one, and retired. Concentrating on the Albemarle, federal fire aimed at the ram's open gun ports. They also tried to lob black powder bags down the Albemarle's single smokestack. Explosives were tossed into the open lattice top of the casemate, and efforts were made to cut down the ram's colors mast. In the ensuing melee, the USS Sassacus bore down, and at 11 knots rammed the Albemarle. It struck the Confederate ship at her starboard knuckle. Water rushed in, but no point-blank gun at that supreme moment was used to fire into the Confederate ironclad. Inside the Confederate casement, the ramming felt like an earthquake. The blow caused the ram to list to the starboard, and taking on some water, Commander Francis A. Rowe ordered the engines of the Sassacus to be maintained at full speed. For ten minutes, the Federal vessel tried to keep the Albemarle starboard submerged. Literally, locked together. Federal sailors tossed grenades at the Albemarle's deck hatches. Small arms fire was exchanged. Eventually, in all the turning and twisting, the Federal warship's damaged bow disengaged, and the two vessels found themselves about a ship's width apart, starboard to starboard. From that point-blank range, Albemarle's starboard forward gun fired, so close that the explosion scorched the paint the USS Sassacus. That 100-pound Confederate shell plowed through the Federal ship's hull, dispensary, coal bunker, starboard boiler, engine room, passed between the ship's cylinders and main condenser, through steerage and wardroom bulkheads, a door, furniture, magazine screen, and finally lodged in a stateroom. Steam poured from the ruptured boiler. It killed one sailor instantly and badly scalded another. As the Sassacus listed, the Albemarle continued to fire and Union Commander Rowe knew his ship was in trouble. With great effort, he turned his vessel and limped out of the fight. However, 
still filled with venom. Even as it turned away, the Federal ship tried to skip shells across the water to find its target. But their velocity was so great that the projectiles drove into the water, passed under the Albemarle, and then rocketed skyward on the other side of the Confederate ship. Finally, two miles away, Sassacus dropped anchor. Now the Miami moved into the cloud of battle that from a distance looked like a thunderstorm on the water, flashes of cannon fire resembling lightning. With eight guns, the Miami now closed, fired, and tried unsuccessfully to explode a torpedo under the Albemarle. For the next 30 minutes, Albemarle alone traded broadsides with the Miami in the way of loosing. Inside the ram's casemate, Concussion from the pounding caused bleeding from ears and nose. Finally, around 6.30 p.m., Cook felt he had done all he could do and ordered the Albemarle to head back toward the Roanoke River. With its smokestack riddled, it was slow going for the Confederate ram. It could make only about five knots. Unable to generate any real power or speed, several Federal vessels followed, overtook, circled, and fired. Cook knew if his ship went dead in the water, it would be its end. To try and increase his speed, all interior wood inside the casemate was stripped and fed to the fires. Meat, bacon, and lard were also tossed in. It seemed like an eternity, but finally the Albemarle made it back to the river's mouth. Behind, Federal vessels refused to follow. With one last act of defiance, the Albemarle fired one final bow shot and then turned into the Roanoke River for the crooked, twisting upriver route back to Plymouth. By 7.30, the great contest was over. Throughout the course of the two-and-a-half-hour fight, Albemarle's six guns fired only 27 shots. Some 60 guns had fired on her 557 times. 44 found their mark. The Albemarle reached Plymouth at about 2 a.m. on May the 6th. In the light of the next day, damage from the battle was revealed. A large piece of its iron plating was in the water, and that had caused steering problems. Its deck was wrecked. Its smokestack shot full of holes. Several two-inch iron plates on the Albemarle's port quarter casemate were cracked, but despite the punishment, the ironclad was afloat, intact, and menacing enough that no Union vessel dared to come up the Roanoke River. Safely docked at Plymouth, Albemarle's commander Cook assessed the vessel's performance after the May 5th battle in which ten of his crew had been killed. He thought the ship had too much draft for the sound, and that had caused insufficient buoyancy. His ship's decks were too close to the waterline. However, with minor design changes, Cook wanted more ironclads, and Gilbert Elliott sought permission and funding to build them. For Union Captain Smith, four of his Union sailors had been killed. Twenty-five had been wounded and one of the three Union gunboats, the 974-ton Sassacus, was completely disabled. Though Smith inflicted damage on the Confederate ram, he knew his fleet could not enter the Roanoke. Someone else was concerned. Washington City. In fact, they were adamant 
The Albemarle had to be destroyed, but without major confrontation. Their choice? A craft to get close enough to the Confederate ram, place a torpedo under its hull, and detonate it. To investigate that possibility, Smith ordered several missions under the cover of night to venture inland to observe the Albemarle, where it was tied up at Plymouth. While doing this, Smith did try to bait the Albemarle back out into the sound, but Cook would have no part of that. And so, the two maintained a healthy and respectful distance from one another. For the Albemarle skipper, in his day of battle on May the 5th, Cook was promoted to captain in early June of 1864. But 13 days later, with his health breaking from all the pressures of command, he was relieved. A new commander arrived. It was John Newland Maffitt, who had formerly commanded the Confederate commerce raider Florida. He arrived June 25th, and under his supervision, repairs from the May 5th fight were completed by mid-August. The rest of that month, September and early October, were slow times for the Albemarle, and a dull, monotonous routine befell its officers and crew. Controversy also reigned as the powers that be debated what to do with the inactive vessel, but things were definitely afoot on the Union side. On July the 5th, a federal naval officer reported to the headquarters of the North Atlantic Blockading Squadron. That day, Acting Rear Admiral Samuel P. Lee, third cousin to Robert E. Lee, met with a Lieutenant Cushing, younger brother of Alonzo Cushing, who gave his life on Cemetery Ridge on the climactic third day at Gettysburg. The 21-year-old William B. Cushing was tabbed to lead a torpedo attack on the Confederate ironclad. Cushing preferred a large-scale attack, but finally agreed to the use of a torpedo. By the time he arrived in North Carolina's Albemarle Sound, several observations had been made of the docked Confederate ram at Plymouth. The Federals knew the Confederate vessel was protected by large timbers, which completely surrounded her as she lay docked. We're not sure, though, if they were aware of a Confederate command change. On the 9th of September, 1864, Commander Maffitt was reassigned to Wilmington, North Carolina, where he took command of a new blockade runner, the Owl. Enter Lieutenant Alexander F. Warley, and conditions for the Albemarle and her crew deteriorated. He inherited a politically enforced inactivity, persistent repair problems, and a sense of apathy that permeated his entire crew. Perhaps they might have snapped out of their lethargy if they knew what Lieutenant William Cushing was up to. It was near the end of October, and he was looking for volunteers. To the 275-man crew of the USS Shamrock, he said, Not only must you not expect but you must not hope to return. I can promise you nothing but glory, death, or possibly promotion. We will have the satisfaction of getting in a good lick at the rebels. That is all. Unbelievably, 
every man stepped forward to volunteer. He handpicked 14 and headed out for Plymouth the night of October the 26th. That night, there were low-hanging clouds when they reached the mouth of the Roanoke River. They were in a steam tug with a 20-foot-long spar which protruded from its front and a 150-pound powder canister secured to its end. Conditions were not favorable. Because the tide had ebbed rapidly, the tug ran aground. By the time they freed the craft, it was around 2 a.m. of the 27th, and fearing they would run out of darkness, Cushing called off the mission until the next evening. He made mental notes, though. Next time, the tug's engine would be enclosed in a box and muffled with tarpaulin, and behind the tug he would tow a cutter that would carry two officers and eleven heavily armed men. They would be used to subdue and capture any Confederate pickets that might sound an alarm. At 8.30 p.m. of the next night, a Thursday, the 27th, with light winds out of the south, Cushing and his men again approached. It was cloudy. There was intermittent rain. At 11.28 p.m., they reached the mouth of the Roanoke and started upriver. As they did, the rain thickened and the winds increased. On board, Cushing ordered complete silence. Though he had a torpedo, he hoped he wouldn't have to use it. Rather, he wanted to steal the Albemarle. To assure complete stealth, they moved under tree branches close to the river's right bank. About a mile from Plymouth, they slipped past Confederate pickets atop an old sunken wreck, Albemarle's first victim back in April, the USS Southfield. And then, there in the distance, Cushing saw a dark mass. It was the iron-plated beast moored to the wharf. Earlier that night in Plymouth, there had been a dance and feast. Maybe the Confederates would be caught napping, but as the Federal force neared, suddenly the angry bark of a sentry's dog, and then a voice hailed them. When no reply came, a shot was fired, then more. A ready-made Confederate bonfire was lit to throw light on the scene. It was 3 a.m. of Friday the 28th, and the 67th North Carolina had spotted them. The Albemarle's port gun port was open, and a menacing 100-pound Brook rifled cannon had been rolled out, loaded with grape shot, and depressed to its lowest point. Now events quickened. Cushing severed the line to the trailing cutter, and his vessel and crew veered toward and past the Confederate sentries atop the sunken Southfield. Confederate bullets pelted all around. Knowing he had to close quickly, Cushing ordered, Ahead fast! The launch leapt through the water. Despite the rain and the darkness, Cushing caught a break. The Confederate bonfires, which were to light up the enemy, actually helped Cushing find his target. With a slight adjustment, he shifted his course, and with a cry, full speed, the launch slammed into the protective log barrier with a grinding crunch. The bow of the tug raised and balanced precariously on the timber. There it sat exposed out of the water. The impact threw Cushing. He stumbled but regained his footing. 
Looking up, he found himself staring directly down the barrel of the Albemarle's grape-shot-filled cannon. It was only 10 to 15 feet away. He heard orders from inside the casemate to prepare to fire. Seconds raced, and yet to Cushing, it all seemed as if in slow motion. He winced the torpedo boom down, and with fire all around him, he waited for the torpedo to submerge. As he labored, he felt his clothes pull, tug. Confederate bullets tore at him. The back of his coat was shot away. One bullet cut away the sole of one of his shoes. Now, with his right hand, he pulled the release cord, counted to five as the torpedo left the spar and floated up under the ironclad's hull. Then, with his left, he pulled the trigger pin cord. There were two explosions. One was muffled. From under the ram's hull, a tremendous wave of water erupted. The torpedo had detonated. The other blast, Albemarle's cannon roared. Hot grape passed just over his head. Then the wave of water caused by the underwater explosion flattened Cushing's tug. It swamped the craft and his crew. Those still alive panicked. Cushing's torpedo had blown a hole under Albemarle's port quarter knuckle, big enough to drive a wagon through. Though there was only one Confederate casualty, the ram of the Roanoke went down quickly. Only its pilot shield and smokestack remained above water. Immediately after the two explosions, Cushing shouted, Men, save yourselves! All dove into the cold water of the Roanoke River. Some held onto the log boom, some to the floundering launch. Unobserved, Cushing and three others swam away from the wreck. Later, two died from exhaustion and exposure in the cold water. Angry Confederates searched everywhere for Union survivors. When they neared Cushing, hiding in dark waters submerged each time. After what seemed an eternity, he finally reached shore downriver from Plymouth. Too weak to go on, he stayed there until daylight. He stumbled through swamps and hugged to low-lying ground all through the day and night of the 28th. Luckily, he found a skiff and paddled his way down into the sound. There, he hailed the USS Valley City. Pulled from the water and onto deck, he collapsed. Of some 28 men, he and only one other survived the attack and successfully escaped. By 11 p.m. of the 28th, they were on the shamrock and confirmed the sinking of the Albemarle. For the Confederates, there was embarrassment and anger. In particular, Lieutenant Worley blamed his pickets. Making certain that the Federals could not salvage anything from the sunken ram, he ordered the forward and top sections blown up. It was a wise move, for the Federals immediately took measures to reconquer the area. Plymouth, indeed, was recaptured only three days later. This new incursion was the beginning of the end of the war in northeastern North Carolina, and by April of 1865, Confederate officials saw the handwriting on the wall. Vessels still under construction at Edwards Ferry were destroyed. And back in mid-March, what was left of the once-feared Albemarle was raised by Union authorities. 
on the day after Lee surrendered his Army of Northern Virginia at Appomattox. The wreck was towed to the Norfolk Navy Yard and upon its April 27th arrival was valued at $92,444. Estimated cost of repair, $21,500. The United States Navy purchased the ship at $79,944 and placed the vessel in out-of-commission status. And so it sat there in Norfolk, rotting until October 1867, when it was sold at public auction to J.N. Leonard and Company for anywhere from $2,500 to $3,200. The once mighty Confederate ram was more than likely scrapped for salvage. An inglorious and most unmilitary end to the career of what once was a terror for the United States Navy. It was created to hopefully turn the tide of the war. Its destruction ensured the fate of a doomed Confederacy. What seemed like a universe ago, Confederate Secretary of the Navy Stephen Mallory pushed the Confederacy to meet the future. Amazingly, despite its industrial handicaps, they strive to do just that. During the conflict, 52 hulls were designated to become ironclads. 30 were laid out. 22 were actually completed and launched. Four of that number were captured. The rest destroyed by the Confederacy itself. Only one was destroyed by enemy action, the CSS Alabamaro. For the agriculturally based South, its industrial creation was nothing short of remarkable. Its design, an ironclad, a glimpse of what was to come. A technological marvel made all the more amazing when one considers its construction site, a North Carolina cornfield. For our next installment, we'll accompany the 16th president as he, in November of 1863, made his way to a great battlefield. What he did there remains timeless. I hope you will join us for Mr. Lincoln Goes to Gettysburg. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.